0: This is Radio Parallax, a slightly different perspective from a slightly different view, with topics that include matters in science, technology, history, politics, current events, and whatever we damn well please. And now the host of Radio Parallax, Douglas Everett. Welcome to the program. This, of course, is our last pre drive radio show. Once a year, of course, KDVS has to ask you, dear listener, for support. We are totally dependent upon the contributions of listeners to uh, maintain our yearly budget. So we're very much hoping that uh, during next week's hour, that would be on the 26th, between 5 and 6, you'll be ready to call in and show your support of what we do on this program and what we do on this station. Over the months, we've gotten numerous, well, I'd say numerous, a significant number of emails from you that have stated that you're addicted to the program, and you love what we do, and, well, now's your chance to prove it. Some addictions, of course, are better than others. We think that being addicted to our programming here is just not a half bad idea, but we still need your support, so please, next week, give generously. But at this point, let us begin today's program, as we like to do, with On This Date in History. Our date in question is the 19th of April. It was on April 19th in 1529 that a letter representing 14 cities and six Lutheran princes was read in protest of German Emperor Charles V's anti-Lutheran policy. The protesters became known as Protestants, a term eventually applied to most non-Catholic Christians. On the 19th of April in 1770, English navigator Captain James Cook, in search of the legendary Terra Australis Incognita, made landfall on Australia's east coast. He called it New South Wales and claimed it for Great Britain. Seven years later, April 19th, 1775, 700 British troops confront 77 armed American militiamen on the Common Green of Lexington, Massachusetts. In the brief battle, eight Americans died and ten were wounded. Only one British soldier was injured, but the American Revolution had begun. Curiously, on the same date in 1861, the first blood of the American Civil War was shed when a secessionist mob in slavery-legal Baltimore attacked Massachusetts troops bound for Washington, D.C. Four soldiers and 12 rioters were killed. And on this date, in 1993 and 1994, respectively, the FBI launched a tear gas assault on the compound of the Branch Davidian religious cult in Waco, Texas. The following year, the Alfred P. Murrah Federal Building in Oklahoma City was blown up by Timothy McVeigh to commemorate the alleged federal authority abuse that took place in Waco the year before tried and convicted in 1997, Tim McVeigh was executed by lethal injection on June 11th, 2001, to which this correspondent says, good. It's my firm belief that some people work so hard to earn the death penalty that it would be wrong not to grant it. And this might be a good time to mention that that opinion, like all, the her, all, like all those heard on this program, do not necessarily represent those of KDVS, our sponsors, or the regions of the University of California. But I'm pretty sure you knew that. Our quote, quip, and joke of the day come from late-night TV guys, Leno, Letterman, and O'Brien. Somewhat arbitrarily divided, actually. Let's start with our quote of the day from Jay Leno. Newt Gingrich's campaign paid $500 to get his name on the Utah primary ballot, and the check bounced. You know, if Newt is spending money he doesn't have, maybe he really is qualified to be president. Our quip comes from Letterman, who said... Rick Santorum has dropped out of the race. He wanted to ban gambling and outlaw pornography. This is a guy who claims Romney's out of touch with America. Finally, Conan O'Brien for our joke, which is that in Alabama, a meth lab was found operating inside a Walmart bathroom. On the bright side, Walmart is finally selling products that are made in America. Our stat of the day is the fact that the U.S. just experienced the warmest start to a year since records began in 1895. Temperatures in the lower 48 states were a record shattering 8.6 degrees above normal for March and 6 degrees higher than the average for the first three months. That's from the Associated Press. I think without too much further ado, we should jump into the good, the bad, and the ugly. of the week magazine it was a good week last week for america's future slave masters actually that's the radio parallax label we're putting on this item which is that foreign security agencies from such countries as iran and china are using students from their nations who are studying in the u.s to obtain cutting-age research on information technology lasers and aeronautics according to the fbi It does turn out, according to Bloomberg.com, that about 41%, 41% of the students at MIT are foreigners on visas. Of course, part of the problem may be that in America, we send people to law school, and in Iran and China, they send people to learn about lasers, information technology, and aeronautics. And of course, given educational costs going through the ceiling, I guess... um, This entrepreneurial attitude in America's institutions of higher learning, of just bringing in high-paying foreign students, well, that that may not pan out so well in the long run. Might not pan out so well in the short run. Speaking of technology, according to the week, it was a bad week last week for stealing technology after Raymond Jefferson was charged with stealing $17,000 worth of merchandise from a radio shack in Chicago, including a GPS device that police used to locate him. And evidently it was an ugly week last week for Ozzie Guilin, manager of baseball's Miami Marlins, after he apparently alienated much of the team's fan base, of course being based in Miami, Florida. um, Maybe it it was not a good idea for him to say that he loved and respected Fidel Castro. Guilin then begged for forgiveness and was suspended for five games. I guess Major League Baseball suspended him for exercising his... uh, Freedom of speech. Cuban-American groups in Florida say they won't stop protesting until he is fired. And uh, no, we have uh, no idea what it is about Fidel Castro that Ozzy Whelan loves and respects. By the way, Mr. Millen believes that the pro- correct pronunciation is Guillen. I don't know. I do have to acknowledge that Fidel Castro is one smart son of a gun, but um, doesn't earn too many points in terms of uh, well, either economic management or ability to share power. We are going to mark him down for you in Works and Plays Well with Others. Here's one we like from the Only in America file. Apparently a Minnesota man was jailed. Jailed because he failed to complete the siding on his house. Mitch Faber says he spent $12,000 bringing his home's stucco exterior in line with zoning laws. But officials declared the work unsatisfactory and he was arrested and jailed for two days. Said Faber, I had to shower in front of the sheriff. My wrists were handcuffed to my waist for siding. No, we don't know whether uh, per Supreme Court to order he was strip searched. You know, Anthony Kennedy's under the impression that some of these guys might be the worst offenders out there. And boy, I bet bet they're proud of him over at McGeorge. The only guy we know who sided with the conservative felons on Bush v. Gore and with the liberal goofballs on the Kelso eminent domain case. Wow, what a swing vote. But for the record, he was not with the majority on Plessy versus Ferguson. And if you don't get why that's funny, we refer you to our own archives in our interview with Michael Trachtman about the Supreme's greatest hits. A really fun chat we had about memorable Supreme Court decisions some years ago. And for the record, Plessy versus Ferguson was the Supreme Court ruling that decided that separate but equal was legitimate. In other words, you could separate people by race as long as the, as long as the facilities supplied were, were equal. It only took the court, I think, but 90 years to decide that uh, actually that, that was not legit. We have so many things we need to talk about, but I do, I think, want to pause and address that Rolling Stone article by Tim Dickinson we started talking about two weeks ago and did not follow up on, on last week's program. A, a piece dovetailing with that appeared in The Economist on the April 14th issue. In fact, let's start with that piece. Noted The Economist, by the way, a business-oriented British publication. Richard Lee, a paraplegic who runs an Oakland dispensary for medical marijuana and who, by the way, sponsored the 2010 ballot measure to legalize marijuana that failed by a uh, small margin. Well, Mr. Lee says he now plans to get out of the marijuana-related business in the wake of him getting busted, harassed, and facing danger of federal prosecution. Of course, last month, armed federal agents stormed his house and offices to confiscate plants and documents. The magazine notes that the raids on his property were only the most telegenic instances of a much wider federal crackdown that has taken states and counties by surprise. Dispensaries and even landlords of dispensary operators all over California, Colorado, and Montana have been getting menacing letters. Many have closed shop. Notes the magazine, growers and users are by turns livid and scared. Some have protested. Others have ducked back into the black market as in the old days before medical marijuana was allowed. Magazine notes, the question is why the federal government is doing this. On the one hand, there is a federal law, the Controlled Substances Act, which recognizes no exception for medical marijuana and thus considers all use and trade of it criminal. On the other hand, the Obama administration originally signaled that it would not deliberately clash with the states about weed. Remember that? In the so-called Ogden Memo of 2009, the Justice Department advised its lawyers to leave small beer marijuana enforcement to the states and focus on graver crimes. But then, last year, the administration issued the Cole Memo. Magazine notes these things are named after the deputy attorney generals who drafted them. It seems in dense verbiage to suggest that the Ogden Memo had been misunderstood and that federal prosecutors should indeed go after the cannabis trade especially if they expect that serious money is being made. Ladies and gentlemen, it seems pretty clear that some election year politics is entering into this. Turns out that in other states, like New Mexico, Rhode Island, and Vermont, there's no crackdown taking place. The article quotes Ethan Nadelman, the head of the Drug Policy Alliance, which lobbies for an end to the failed war on drugs, that uh, the six federal prosecutors involved in California and Colorado, Montana, may be acting on their own perhaps even in conflict with the Obama administration. The president, per this scenario, is too afraid to touch anything that looks soft on drugs in an election year and stands weakly by. This is not the first time that uh, this allegation has surfaced, that that the federal attorneys are acting on their their own, anticipating that nobody upstairs has the guts to stop them. I know when uh, Capitol Public Radio hosted a, a forum on medical marijuana a couple years ago, which, by the way, Jeffrey Callison uh, was probably the best I've seen him. But as I sat in the audience, behind Ngaio Ngai Bilem, by the way, I, I was hoping that what the words coming out of the uh, federal attorney's mouth were legit. He assured the listenership of Capital Public Radio that nobody who really had a legitimate medical need need worry about any efforts that the federal government would institute. Well, that was then. This is now. The Tim Dickinson piece does note that in the wake of uh, the naming of Michelle Leonard, a holdover from the Bush administration to head the Drug Enforcement Agency, that's one of the signs policies began to change. Leonard is an anti-medical marijuana hardliner, and it was in January of last year, just weeks after her confirmation, that her agency updated a paper called The DEA Position on Marijuana, with subject headings like, The Fallacy of Marijuana for Medicinal Use and Smoked Marijuana is Not Medicine, the paper simply regurgitated the Bush administration's ideological stance in an attempt to walk back the Ogden Memo. Noted Tim Dickinson, sounding like Glenn Beck, the DEA even blamed George Soros and a few billionaires, not broad grassroots support, for sustaining the medical marijuana movement, even though polls show that 70% of Americans approve of medical pot. Noted the Rolling Stone piece, almost immediately, federal prosecutors went on the attack. Their first target was the city of Oakland. A month after the DEA issued its hardline position, U.S. Attorney Melinda Hag warned the city of Oakland that the feds were weighing criminal prosecution against the proposed pot operations. Abandoning the Ogden memo's protections for state-sanctioned caregivers, Hag effectively re-declared war on medical pot saying, quote, we will enforce the Controlled Substances Act vigorously against individuals and organizations that participate in unlawful manufacturing and distribution activity involving marijuana, unquote. Adding, quote, even if such activities are permitted under state law, unquote. Two months later, federal prosecutors in Washington state went even further. They threatened state employees responsible for implementing new regulations for pot dispensaries. U.S. attorneys sent a letter to Governor Christine George warning that state employees, quote, would not be immune from liability under the Controlled Substances Act, unquote. Shocked by the threat, it subjected Washington state employees to felony criminal prosecution. Gregory vetoed the new rules. Note of the piece, in isolation, such moves might be seen as the work of overzealous U.S. attorneys who operate with considerable autonomy. But last June, the Justice Department effectively declared it was returning to the Bush administration's hardline stance on medical marijuana. And that is when James Cole, who would replace Ogden as Deputy Attorney General, wrote his memo revoking his predecessor's deference to states on the definition of, quote, caregiver, unquote. The term, Cole insisted, applied only to individuals providing care to individuals with cancer or other serious illnesses, not commercial operations cultivating, selling, or distributing marijuana. Pot dispensaries, in short, were once again prime federal targets, even if they were following state law to the letter. But wait, it gets worse. The Obama administration has also put patients in the crosshairs. Last September, the Bureau of Alcohol, Tobacco, and Firearms moved to deprive Americans who use medical marijuana of their gun rights. I just put two and two together. I was talking about this with somebody yesterday and mentioned uh, recommendations for marijuana, and the guy says, no, I don't want to lose my gun. This is great. In an open letter to gun sellers, the ATF warned that it is unlawful to sell any firearm or ammunition to any person who uses or is addicted to marijuana, regardless of whether his or her state has passed legislation authorizing marijuana for medical use. In other words, if your doctor advises you to use medical pot, you can no longer legally own a gun. You know, in a country that has been rapidly opposed to m- most moderate and reasonable suggestions of gun control, the idea that the feds are getting on board and keeping you from having a gun if you simultaneously use pot is rather laughable, wouldn't you say? Because if you're an alcoholic, there's no similar restriction on you. And which do you think is more likely to result in gun violence? The patient A, who is buzzed on pot, or B, drunk as a skunk? Now, if you've lived in a cave or a nunnery your entire life long, you you may not be able to answer that question, but I think to most of the rest of us, it's pretty clear that it's the drunk with the handgun that is more worrisome. Wouldn't you agree, Mr. McMillan? Now, I think we all agree that the war on drugs has been a smashing success. It's virtually impossible to find drugs in any metropolitan area in America. And, of course, the evidence that there's transshipments coming through Latin America, countries such as Mexico, well, that seems to have dried up, wouldn't you say? But speaking of illegal drug operations... uh, Hag, who is the U.S. attorney for Northern California, claims that federal action here against pot is necessary because the state's legalized pot dispensaries have, quote, been hijacked by profiteers, unquote, who are nothing more than criminals. Notes Rolling Stone, it's true that California has no shortage of illegal pot dealers. Non-medical marijuana is the state's largest cash crop. It rakes in an estimated $14 billion a year. But note the piece, instead of focusing limited federal resources on off-the-grid growers in places like Humboldt County, who are often armed and violent, Hagg targeted Matthew Cohen, a medical marijuana farmer in Mendocino who was growing 99 plants under the direct supervision of the county sheriff. As part of a pioneering collaboration with local law enforcement, Cohen marked each of his plants with county-supplied tags, had his secured facility inspected, and distributed the marijuana he grew directly to patients in his nonprofit collective. Cohen appeared to be precisely the kind of caregiver that the Ogden memo advised should be given safe harbor for operating. But as you might have anticipated, last October, DEA agents stormed Cohen's farm in the middle of the night and cut down his crop. Sheriff Tom Allman, who learned of the raid on his turf only an hour before it was executed, was outraged saying, Matt Cohen was not in violation of any state or local ordinances when federal agents arrived at his location. In January, Haig took the fight to the next level, threatening county officials like Allman with federal sanctions. Is this what you wanted when we elected this clown back in November of 08? I don't think so. We need a short break. Let's take one. You're listening to Radio Parallax. I'm Douglas Everett.